Welcome to Body Signals, a Cygnos podcast. I'm your host, Bill Tanser, Chief Data Scientist at Cygnos. This is Season 2, Episode 2, a chat with biohacker, author, and hit podcast host, Melanie Avalon. On this episode, we'll talk to podcast sensation Melanie Avalon about biohacking, her dietary lifestyle changes, we'll talk about her biggest surprises and disappointments in all things she's tested as a biohacker. We'll spend some time talking about cryotherapy and also about her book, What, When, Wine, and how she's integrated wine into her intermittent fasting regimen. This is a fascinating episode you don't want to miss. Before we get to the show, a quick disclaimer. Any statements made on the show are for educational purposes only. Those statements are not medical advice. Should you have any questions about your own health, you should consult with your physician or healthcare provider. Now on to today's show. So welcome back to Body Signals. We are thrilled to have Melanie Avalon on the show today. For those of you that don't know Melanie, she's an actress, a certified wine specialist. She's also the host of Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, the co-host of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast with Jen Stevens, as well as the author of What, When, Wine, Losing Weight with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. Melanie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Bill. I'm so excited to be here. I'm a huge fan of your work, so this is just really an honor. And it's an honor for us. We're so excited to have you. And I've got to say, in all of the short bios I've put together, you have one of the most diverse that I've seen, (laughs) from actress to biohacking to author to podcast host, intermittent fasting, biohacking. Fascinating. I'm, I'm... I'm sure the audience wants to hear a little bit about Melanie and kind of get to know you. So let's start with how you got into acting and your transition from that to to biohacking would maybe be a great place to start. Sure. So, yeah, I hadn't thought about that before, about how it's sort of all over the place. But um, I guess growing up, acting and performing was always my thing and creating. And um, it I... I got another obsession that came out of that when I was living in LA, going to film school and theater school, and the importance of maintaining a camera-ready body. <laughs> um, I was always trying different diets, and I started to realize the incredible effect that diet can have on our health, especially when I transitioned from all of the crazy weight loss diets to I first went low carb. Um, and then I found paleo and intermittent fasting. And I realized that it wasn't just about weight that our dietary choices and fasting as well can make such an effect on our entire health. And, um, I became just a little bit obsessed with the science of diet. And then I graduated. I started experiencing some different health conditions like digestive issues. And I realized in retrospect that the apartment I moved into had black mold and had a gas leak. And so I just wasn't feeling well. And um, I started going down all of the rabbit holes trying to find lifestyle techniques and things that would make me feel better. And all the things I was dabbling in is really what today we would call biohacking, but that word wasn't really around that much at that time. Um, But it really just led to 
I mean, obsessions. And I have this thing where when I find something that works for me, I, I just have to share it with everybody. Like I'm a, I'm a sharer and a teller. So that's why I wrote my book. That's why I started the podcast was just to share what I had learned. Not to say that what I am experiencing or what I've learned is the one right answer. Cause I think everybody's individual, everybody's unique. They should find what works for them. But I just really like sharing all of the information that I do come across. So that's, that's where I am today. And that, that really comes across in your book. I got to say, this is one of the most engaging books about diet that I've read. I think partly because you put so much of yourself into the book, telling your own personal stories around dieting. In fact, you start by going through your history of dieting from from being a young girl and, and hearing about, I think it was a cousin that was dieting, was your first experience on into all the things that you tried in school. And it's so relatable because I think so many people that have worked on wellness and weight loss probably probably went through that same experience of hopping to different diets. And it's fascinating that you land on biohacking because that's something that we're also very much about, about experimentation and and N equals one experiments and and the fact that you love to share, uh, which is, I I guess we have that in common as well. Yes. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, I could talk about all the things all the time. I just get so excited because you, you find these things that, um, especially when it dismantles myths or paradigms that a person might have been having, like you were talking about my experience with all the different diets and, you know, you can have these epiphanies that maybe things aren't the way we've been told. And maybe if we go about things differently, that they can have really profound effects on our entire experience of the world. So I, I love, I love it. Yeah. And you've, how many episodes do you have now in the biohacking podcast? Oh goodness. Um, that's a really good question. I think it's, it's a lot. I had to scroll a lot to get to all the great content. Yeah. I think the episode that came out today was 100 and can actually pull it up. It's in the, the 100s. And probably in some respect in those hundreds, you probably tried whatever that topic was as, you know, something that was an experiment for you, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I just checked 119 is today's episode. Um, yeah, it's, it's such a vast array of topics, but every, I mean, I think so probably every single thing I have dabbled in, in some way, because I, I only bring on people. I, I only bring on people on the show where it's a topic that I've been pretty obsessed with. Um, so yeah, there's definitely that personal experience with everything. So I'm curious, if we look back through all the things that you've tried in biohacking, what was the biggest positive surprise? Oh, goodness. Um, so, well, so something that I've been doing since my early days, like went before, like I said, it was even called biohacking, was taking charge of my light exposure. Um, so things like blue light blocking glasses, later using red light. I mean, that's really been one of the main consistencies in my life for like a decade now. Um, it has, and it's funny to me, like it just seems second nature. Like I would not at night, no way would I be in an environment with natural light and not be wearing my, or like uh, artificial fluorescent light, um, and not be wearing my blue light blocking glasses. And the effect it has on my sleep is just profound. And it just seems so obvious to me now, but, um, at the, before doing it, I think it would answer that question you just said, which was 
I'd be surprised by um, the effect that it had. I, I would have to mirror that. I have the same experience with light. With one exception, I don't know if you're a fan of Andrew Huberman's podcast, but I'm a big fan of listening to some of his content as well. And he had this suggestion of going out in uh, outside at uh, dawn and dusk and letting the light hit your eyes without any blue blocking glasses on. So in addition to wearing blue blocking glasses, I do that one extra thing of letting the 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 light at sunrise and sunset kind of hit my eyes so that my brain can start to set its circadian rhythm and know when it's light and dark and then put on the blue blocking glasses helped my sleep even more. So if you haven't tried that, it might be something you want to try. Oh, I will have to try that. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of his work. And, um, I, I think I actually listened to that episode because they, I think they dismantled some of the blue light blocking glasses myths. If it was the same one. Um, yes. Yeah. I, I think it was on that episode. If not, I, it was when Matthew Walker was, was being interviewed. There's, I think, a study underway right now, which is another cautionary tale with blue light blocking glasses, which is there's a study, I think it's in the UK that's ongoing, that um, content itself can interrupt sleep. So if it's content that activates you, having blue light, light blocking glasses on or not is going to disrupt your sleep. So it's not like the perfect shield that will give you sleep. You also have to be careful about the content you're consuming before going to bed. Exactly. And I had, I had casually heard that like a long time ago and it really stuck with me. And, um, I mean, I know obviously like really stimulating content would wake you, like probably wake you up, um, and keep you alert. But I, I, I don't know if this is true, but I had heard that like the type of content that it is can actually affect our sleep because historically we wouldn't have been accustomed to certain types of engagement at night. So it's like sending our brain <laughs> the wrong signal. Yes. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's waking us up. Yeah. So as a biohacker, I think I'm also interested in the flip side of all the things that you've tested. What's the biggest disappointing experiment that you ran? Yeah, I people ask me that a lot. And, and honestly, so most of the things I've tried have worked to some extent. Um, maybe some things don't end up being as life changing as I think they would be. But honestly, I think the thing that I probably, if there's like regrets, it's just all of the supplements that I've tried. Like there's so many supplements. And I think I went through a phase, especially during my, when I was really having a lot of health issues where I was trying so many supplements and trying to find the thing that would work. And now I have like a supplement graveyard of everything. And, um, <laughs> I think I get supplement fatigue. So, cause brands will, I get emails almost daily from brands with their supplements, um, like wanting me to try it. I'm just, I, I have, to, it's very rare that I even want to try new supplements now because, um, I don't know. It's just, it gets overwhelming. You know, for me, as as someone who experiments with all these different things in terms of weight loss and wellness, sleep, I find the problem I have with supplements is that I'm I'm building up all these confounding factors where I'm not sure mm -hmm. sometimes what's working and what's not. And then I have to remove all of that and start at ground zero to figure out what's moving the needle in the thing that I'm trying to move. Is it that magnesium at night for sleep or is it the melatonin or is it the blue blocking glasses? So that that is a challenge I see from supplements. 
You, we're the same person. That is my exact thought. Like that is, that is it. Like you don't, you just don't know. Like, like yeah. and there's, it's really hard. You can't really, I mean, you can't really control for it. Like how, cause there's so many factors. How, how could you know, um, you know, what is doing what? So the way I look at it is I, I feel like the things that for some reason I kept them in and kept doing them, then there's, there's probably like staying power there. So rather than me trying to figure out exactly what's doing what, I kind of just see what passes the longevity test and stays with me, which, which is a handful of supplements, but, um, yeah, it's, it's a true, true thought. It's almost like you're describing a new school of intuitive supplementing. Yeah. Yeah. In a way. I like that. I do too. And and the complicated thing about supplements I don't know. Most of them are just so vague, especially the ones that are, um, so things that you could test in in your blood tests, like vitamin D, for example, you could really tell if that's being effective. And I know it is for me because I tend, (laughs) I went from like low vitamin D to like way too high vitamin D with supplementing. Um, but other things that are more nebulous, like a lot of nootropics or like NMN and NR, um, it's like I just have to sort of trust that they're doing something, but it's hard to know. It really, it really is. Um, in terms of food, have you done much testing in terms of what food works for you, what food doesn't? You know, I'm kind of interested in how you started those experiments. Yeah. So I, so the the big first dietary change, um, and I mentioned it earlier, was I went low carb. And that was the first time, but this was like, you know, processed low carb, not, not whole foods. You know, I was still super gluten exposed. Um, but it, it had such an effect in that I lost those blood sugar crashes. Like I finally could just go, I like eating didn't become an emergency like it was before that. Um, I didn't feel the need to snack constantly. So that was really the big paradigm shift for me. And then Evolving from there, I I started gravitating more and more to, especially adding in fasting, I started gravitating more and more to just really simple, plain whole foods. And especially when I went um, paleo, um, I, same, I started gravitating towards, I didn't need all the additives, I didn't need all the flavorings. But the, the staple for me that I know really works is I I require like a lot of protein. So I'm always eating a ton of protein and that's kind of the staple. And then from there, at least now I actually, and I, and I found that in order for me to properly have nice blood sugar levels, I have to do either low fat. Um, so low fat, high carb or high carb, low fat. I can't really, I can't really mix fats and carbs. So my meals tend to be Protein is the base, so like a ton of protein. And I don't even like to say how much because it's an exuberant amount. Um, and then either ton of carbs, usually from fruit, or ton of, um, well, not a ton of, but w- or with fat. Um, and I find that, because um, I know we were talking before about like continuous glucose monitors, I find with that 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 is what keeps my my blood sugar stable. Right, yeah, just monitoring how those combinations work. Um and protein as a base would make sense that you'd have better control. You in your book, you did cite, the, and I was so happy to see this. You cited the 2015 uh, study in Cell on personalized nutrition that came out of the Weizmann Institute. 
that really is the foundation for what you were saying earlier that, you know, these are some experiments that you've run that work for you. And what that study had shown was that uh, putting CGMs on a bunch of people, I can't remember the end of that study, but it was pretty large. They, um, they tested all sorts of different foods on the subjects in this test and everyone had different responses. So somebody would spike on pizza and not ice cream. The other person would spike on ice cream, not pizza. And I think that's such a powerful idea that uh, really is relevant to the biohacker because there are so many one-size-fits-all suggestions if you're trying to increase your wellness or lose weight, yet we're all so individual. So a lot of it does take some testing, right? 100%. Yeah, I I love that study. And I mean, it was a really big endeavor. They They did... They did the initial study, then they did a, a smaller co- cohort to confirm it. And then on top of that, they um, created an al- algorithm based on what they had learned and implemented um, these techniques where they wanted to see if they could predict people's blood sugar responses. But um, yeah, because it, it's because I mean, prior to that, I mean, I don't know how much, I mean, I guess it had been studied otherwise, but this is what really popularized that idea that, or prior to the study, the idea was that we all react the same to different foods. So, you know, a given food, like a cookie or a banana or rice is going to have a certain blood sugar response in a given person. But what they found was that it's, it's all over the board. Like you just mentioned, like, you know, some people might be amazing with bananas and then another person, it just spikes it through the roof and you would have, I mean, it's really hard to know that unless you're wearing a CGM, for example, where you're seeing in real time your response to that. Um, but what they did on top of that was they, they took in the CGM responses and then they also looked at the people's gut microbiomes and their activity and their blood markers and their age. And they found that there's all of these factors that, when they analyze them, they actually could predict people's blood responses or blood sugar responses to foods, but it's not just the food. It's all of these other factors. Yeah, it it really is. And I'll make an embarrassing confession. So this is the links that I will go to study things like this. Yeah. (laughs) On our last podcast episode, we had our staff nutritionist, Jody Geigel on, and we got to talking about apples. And the idea kind of popped in my head, I should test apples. So I went to the grocery store and I counted like 16 different varieties Then went to another store and found another 14 on top of those 16 started buying every single variety of apple I could find. And so I started this experiment where first thing in the morning before I had eaten anything and I had a stable blood glucose, I would eat a variety of apple and look at my glucose response. And I think the staff, uh, here at Cygnos is getting a little tired of me posting all the pictures of apples every day. It was Pink Lady, Granny Smith, Macintosh. And it was amazing to see the difference, different response I had to each apple, but then even more fascinating when I was able to rope a couple of my colleagues into this experiment and have them do the same apples. Mm-hmm. And one person would spike on a green and not really? a red. And we're just talking about one piece of fruit. Like, I love that you can go that deep into into something and study the differences, but it really does make the point that was being made in that that study 
that everyone responds differently. And it can be down to a variety of an apple. And we're talking about big swings in glucose. I actually, when I started at Cygnos, this is April 2020, I ate an apple one of the first days and I spiked like 60 points and I stopped wow. eating apples. And now with this new experiment, I must, you know, given the new healthy eating habits I have, I hardly spiked at all in the first apple. There were some that I had no response at all. And then some that I had a um, maybe plus 30 points. So, you know, a little bit of a spike. But that has kind of reintroduced this fruit into my diet that I can eat, which was awesome. So did it seem to correlate at all to the perceived sweetness of the apple or... Was it not predictable that way? You would think, but it was actually the tart apples that spiked me the most. The one thing I did find that was fascinating is that one of the other places I went to buy apples was the farmer's market. And at the farmer's market, they had some heirloom apples that uh, aren't the more modern apples that have been bred to be sweet. And those heirloom apples did not spike me at all. So there was an Arkansas black apple which was delicious i'd never tried one before it tasted great maybe not as sweet as like a honey crisp or a fuji but no spike at all just absolutely flat and some of the other heirlooms that i tried there same thing just not not much of a an increase and that's because a lot of these varieties that are out there are being bred to be more sweet even if we can't perceive it i think it kind of hooks us on eating that specific fruit versus another and causes us to buy more. So uh, just a, sorry, just an aside, I had to talk about apples because that's my current obsession right now. I love that. That is so something I would do. And now I'm just thinking, I I went through an apple obsession period. I even did like an apple fast. Um, And I (laughs) remember, I remember trying all the different apples and getting really obsessed with kind of like wine tasting, but apple tasting, but even something like an apple fast people would do, you know, it could have a huge different effect depending on how they personally react to, you know, the apples that they yeah. pick. Yeah. And that's just the beginning. Then it comes into food combination. Do we put some almond butter on that apple? Oh, yeah. Or do we peel the apple? And if we remove some of the fiber, how does that change things? So a lot more to come on apples, unfortunately, for some people who are like, stop with the apples already. Exactly. Actually, really quick um, thought, like um, you just mentioned adding almond butter to the apple. See, that's an example of something that I think is, that I think about a lot and I think is a little bit potentially um, misperceived because they'll say to add, you know, if you add fat to a carb that that reduces the blood sugar response. But something I wonder is, and I think they've looked at this in studies, is that it might actually just create an elongated slightly rise blood sugar response. So, you know, the area under the curve might actually be greater. Um, right. So lot, there's yeah. so many factors. Yeah, these are great points. And I think things like that, food combinations, even macro combinations, can be very individual, just like the food itself and how we respond. So uh, if you're interested in how that might affect your blood sugar, test it out. Run a good study. Do it uh, first thing in the morning. When your your glucose is stable, try and eliminate all confounding factors you can. But yeah, it, it's it's true. It's a lot of people talk about the spikes, but the area under the curve is really one of the other important measures, probably the most important measure you should look at. Because if you're really elevating your glucose for a period of time, it's not that short spike. You might have the same or even worse uh, results from eating that specific food. Yeah, exactly. I am. Um... 
think about it a lot. <laughs> yeah, I bet you do. So um, we talked about a bunch of diets and in and, and that whole series of diets that you went through, you settled on paleo. So I'm kind of interested as to why that seemed to be the diet for you. Yeah. So I, I feel like the word paleo now has a little bit different connotation. Like it had like its heyday and now it's hard to know like what that even means, but the way I look at it is eating the foods that historically as, you know, hunter gatherers, we would have been eating. So real whole foods, um, meat, vegetables, fruits, and then it's really, you know, not having those grains, um, from modern agriculture. So not having the issues of our inability to digest them and gluten and things like that. And then also not processed foods. And then, you know, there's gray area foods that people debate in the paleo world, like dairy and um, I guess even alcohol and legumes. But um, I'm, I'm really about, my main thing is like real whole foods and then people finding what works for them within that. And then I think a lot of people have food sensitivities. So you know, finding the foods that don't create an immune response um, can be really, really key. And that, again, that's really individual and it exists within this whole paleosphere as well. Um, but, and then, but then on top of that, I'm pretty like, I'm macronutrient agnostic, I like to say. So I think some people, you know, do great on high carb, low fat. Some people do better on low carb. Um, it really just depends on your body and also like the time of your life that you're at because things might change. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Now this, this adoption of paleo for you, it sounds like it's not so much of a diet anymore. It's a lifestyle change. And and for us at Cygnos diets, kind of a four letter word, we don't want to give somebody a quick fix. We're looking for something sustainable that will help you lose the weight and then keep the weight off indefinitely. Do, do you find that this new um, system that you have where you've kind of adapted paleo is a, a long-term lifestyle change that you'll keep indefinitely? 100%. Um, yeah, I like to think about it more as a paradigm rather than, you know, a certain diet. And I think I've fallen into this trap and I think a lot of people fall into the trap of mistaking a dietary change for the like the results that they get when they try some sort of diet, they think it was the the diet that caused that and that that diet is now going to be the thing that they follow forever and ever. But really when you change your diet and you experience success, it could be talking about being so many factors. Like it could be so many factors. It could be something you cut out. It could be some nutrient that you were missing and you added in. So whatever quote diet you're following, um, if it really, really works, great. But, but that doesn't mean that you have to follow that forever. And it doesn't mean that it won't evolve or change from there. But I think for me, it's like I have, I have my, my main tenets, which are, you know, the real whole foods. And then for me, not, no grains, not really much dairy. Um, but I don't really feel like it's a diet. It's, it's definitely a lifestyle choice. Yeah, absolutely. I, one of the questions I ask people when they were talking about weight loss and they mentioned some new plan that they're on is, is this something you think that you'd want to keep up forever or is it just short term to lose some weight? And usually what they, res their response to that is predictive of, of their long-term success. 
So if someone's trying something to lose 10 pounds in the next month and then stops, we're all familiar with yo-yo dieting and the fact that metabolism can change. There's the famous Biggest Loser uh, studies that were done on past contestants. So yeah, it it really is about finding those things that work for you, which fits, I think, kind of dovetails nicely with biohacking because it's it's that mindset that, okay, it's not one size fits all. We can all try things and find what works for us, but let's find something that's healthy and that we can maintain long-term. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, that's one of the questions we get all the time on the intermittent fasting podcast. People want to know, like once they lose the weight, like how do they transition to maintenance? Like how do they, you know, change their fasting or change their diet to support the quote maintenance phase? And the way I see it is it's not like you're doing, like you just said, it's not like it's this diet to lose this immediate amount of weight. And then there there has to necessarily be a change. It's more just you're existing (laughs) within this um, paradigm that should work. I mean, in theory, indefinitely. So I can totally see how that would predict people's success on any given quote weight loss plan. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm interested. I, I know that you've monitored your, your glucose levels before. What are your thoughts on things outside of food that have affected you personally? Like if you looked at a, a day after a poor night's sleep versus a good night's sleep or stress or any other factors, have you seen things that affect your glucose outside of food? Yeah. Um, so general activity, well, actually backtracking in general, my blood glucose levels, especially with my fasting pattern, which is I, I do one meal a day. So I just eat in the evenings and the, the pattern tends to be very similar, um, every day, which is basically I, when I wake up, I do have a higher glucose level from that, that morning spike. Um, especially, and then I'll have like a sip, I'll have like a sip of coffee. I don't have, you're saying before you had a lot of coffee. I, I'm so sensitive to coffee. I have like a sip and it's more like a hermetic stress that kind of just gets me going. But, um, I tend to have like a, a spike in the morning and then kind of goes down a little when I do cryotherapy, which I usually do midday, um, I, and I, I've been asking, I, I've been trying to figure out the answer to this. My CGM spikes through the roof, and I'm not sure if it's the CGM spazzing out in the cold or if it's like my liver dumping a lot of glycogen because um, there's a massive spike. So it's hard. For, I don't know if, if it's a real spike or not. Um, but after that, it goes down and then it continues to go down farther through the rest of the day. So the cryotherapy, um, which for listeners, if they're not familiar, it's where you um, go into a a chamber usually, and it's very cold, like negative 200 something degrees um, for a few minutes. So that seems to have a really amazing effect on my blood sugar levels in the, in the evening. And then um, actually one thing before that, I started supplementing with berberine talking about supplements Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, that actually, that has an amazing effect on, my blood sugar levels. Um, and then it's basically the longer I fast, the, the more they go down. If I do some intense activity, I might see actually a spike. Um, but yeah, as far as the, the sleep, the sleep is a good question. I actually haven't noticed with my sleep that 
that difference. And my and my thoughts on that, and I don't know, I need, I need to look into this more, but um, they they often say, I would be curious to know your thoughts on this, that, you know, poor sleep leads to poor glucose control and people have, you know, higher blood sugar levels or um, poorer blood sugar responses. But my my question there is because I do fast every single day regardless, I don't know if that temporarily potential insulin sensitivity from lack of sleep in a way matters because I'm, I don't eat, like I, like even after poor night's sleep. Um, so I'm actually very curious about that. Have, have you yeah. thought about that at all? I have thought about that. And here's my theory behind uh, poor glycemic control after poor night's sleep is that it may be a function of insulin sensitivity, but more likely it's the challenge your body has with the suppression of, um, of leptin when you're not sleeping. So your body produces a satiety hormone when you're asleep that keeps you from getting up and wanting to go to the fridge. But if you're having a really poor night's sleep, some of that leptin is actually going to be produced. And then ghrelin production from the stomach, which is the hunger hormone. So that poor glycemic control is probably how you're responding in your eating habits. Um, Not so much. uh, It's more of a factor of of exogenous um, carbs that you're probably eating to, to satisfy those hormones that are circulating in your body that are telling you, I'm not full, I'm really hungry, feed me because I need energy given that lack of sleep. So it's, it's, it's probably confounded. So there's probably some issues with the insulin sensitivity and how your eating habits um, change when you have a poor night's sleep. But that's from my own personal experience and what I've seen, that's my guess. It's the, it's the combination of the two. That's really, really fascinating. Yeah. I, I guess the the question would be, you know, these changes in these hormones, like you just mentioned, and the insulin sensitivity, what is the effect if you don't act on them? <laughs> you know, so if you, and, can, and is that something that you can wait out? Um, because I, even on a poor night's sleep, I, I don't ever, like, I don't, I don't usually give in and, you know, eat because I'm hungry. Even if I'm hungry from the poor night's sleep, I still like wait it out until the evening. And I think that longer fast probably, regulates things a bit, but, um, yeah, that, that's really, it's really, it's a lot to think about. Yeah. And I, I think that your, um, OMAD or the one meal a day approach to intermittent fasting probably is helping you in that scenario because your body has been conditioned to have that one meal a day. So even with maybe some extra ghrelin in your system telling you you're hungry, you're probably more likely to not eat, um, so that's helping you. The other thing that's helping you is that when you're only eating one meal a day, your body is going to have to rely on your uh, glycogen stores in your liver partially for fuel, as well as converting some fat into fatty acids to fuel your body and your muscles. So that combination of things probably is helping as well. Yeah, exactly. And um, I'm impressed. A lot of people, <laughs> I feel like a lot of people will say that we're relying on the, the liver and the muscle glycogen stores, but it's, I mean, it's really just the liver for, the muscle would just be for the um, the intense exercise using that muscle acutely. Um, can I tell you a mind-blowing fact that I learned recently that relates to all this that you might already know, but it just kind of blew my mind. 
How can I say no to that? Okay. How can I say no to a mind-blowing fact? Of course. Okay. Okay. So, you know how people say that, so like the ketogenic diet or entering ketosis, the idea is that we, we turn, we start generating ketones. Okay. Let me just, let me backtrack. Let me ask you the question. Why do we start creating ketones? What, what fuel substrate do we lose the ability to burn? Wow. That's a hard question. I'm not sure I have the answer to that. You know, I was uh, just reviewing the different substrates that the body uses in terms of athletic ability. And ketones is one of those fuel sources that's more on the short-term side. But what are we losing? Uh, so here, I'll, I'll help you out. So, yeah, yeah. so a lot of people say that we run out of carbs like, so we run out of, and this is why I thought about it. Cause you mentioned glycogen. So like we run yeah. out of our stored carbs. So we have to start creating ketones. That's like the idea. Like once you deplete your, your carbs, then you got to switch over to fat burning and switch over to ketones. But right, the combination of the two. So it, it is still the fatty acids being released from that post tissue and the ketones as well. Right. right that you yeah. end up running on. But the reason you make the switch is because um, in the Krebs cycle, we burn fat using glucose. Like glu- like carbs are required to burn fat. Mm-hmm. So when we run out of glucose, we literally can't burn fat. So the, people think that we start uh, creating ketones because we can't burn carbs, but really it's because we can't burn fat anymore. That like blew my mind. <laughs> Fascinating. I've got to read up more on that. It's um, it's something people talk about in the the fasting world a lot. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't quite got that deep with the fasting geeks yet. Um, you know, still in the just the general biohacking community, but that is something that I have to study. I do want to go back and just answer another question you had, which is what happens when you enter that cryotherapy chamber. I was kind of stuck on the fact that it's like negative two hundred for several minutes. I don't, even, <laughs> I don't even know how that's possible that you could do that. Uh, but my guess is um, the way CGMs work and the fact that that little uh, filament is going in a, into interstitial fluids, that spike is not related to the CGM. If anything, I would think I would see a dip because if in that much cold, I don't know that your interstitial fluids would be circulating anymore, maybe probably less. What I think is happening is that fight or flight response. I mean, my response would be flight from that chamber and my body would probably respond with releasing the glycogen stores from the liver to fuel me up to get the heck out of there and go somewhere that's warmer is my guess. So so you're saying um, that it is registering that blood sugar response from the liver or you think it's not, re- like it is releasing the, li- the, the blood sugar or the sugar, but... That, that's not actually what's being measured on the CGM. No, it, I think it is okay. what's being measured on the CGM. I think uh, I just I'm trying to think of how that much cold could could cause a um, an errant response from the CGM, and I don't really think I can come up with something. But the hypothesis that um, that cold of a temperature would cause a fight or flight response seems more plausible. Yeah. What what I need to do, I need to, I mean, doing this every day, I need to bring in a glucometer and just check right after 
um, and see what it says. But yeah, that was my theory that it was like a fight or flight response thing. Um, yes. So the glucometer. So if you do that experiment, one thing to keep in mind is that the test you do with a finger stick is going to be more real time than what you're seeing on a CGM. Right. Uh, in that you've got like a, there's like a ten to fifteen minute delay from things going from the blood to the interstitial fluids. So uh, how would I do this? I guess bring in the glucometer into the. <laughs> Well, I think so. Presumably, yeah, you'd have to bring the bring the glucometer into the cryo chamber if, if that's at all possible, <laughs> and start sticking yourself while you're freezing yourself. Well, so the session is only three minutes. So okay, okay. I so yeah, you could do it right after. It right after it should still yeah probably reflect. And, yeah, check it right after. Then check what the glucometer. So when when you're looking at um, you, the CGM response, is it spiking like? It's 10, crazy. 15 minutes. Is it spiking 10 to 15 minutes after you exit the chamber? You know, that's a good question. I don't, I don't think so. I'd have to look back on some of my data. I think it makes it look like it's happening. Ooh, that would tell us if it's the CGM. It, yeah. Okay. I think we've solved I have it. To, I have to put on another CGM. I haven't. So I've worn, um, I, I mean, I've worn them for months and months, but I haven't worn one in a while. So I'll have to, I'll have to check that. Yeah, because okay. normally, you know what, I'm thinking about it now, because I, I get out, and then I scan it, and it's, like, really high. <laughs> so, it probably is the sensor, I guess. We're going to have you back, because we want to report back okay. on what it was. Um, <laughs> I don't think there's any chance in the world that I'm going to go into a I was gonna chamber ask. with my CGM. I was going to ask if, uh, if this was, you can, you can work up to it. Like, you can start with, like, negative 100-something, and then... Work up to negative two twenty. Yeah, because that seems so so so. You can start with like a minute, more like palatable a, than like a to minute. negative like hundred. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, enough on cryotherapy. I think, <laughs> I think we've beaten that uh, dead horse. So, I'm curious, uh, what are you doing for exercise? And and given all the things that you're trying and optimizing, do, does exercise work into one of the things that you've you've experimented with? Yes. So I am a huge fan of holistic natural movement. So I'm a huge fan of moving constantly because today we are so sedentary. And I think the implications of that on our health are extremely detrimental. So I'm all about moving as much as you can throughout the day. I do something, I talk about this in the book, but I I wear weights during the day, like wrist weights. Um, mm. I used to wear ankle weights. I used to wear a weighted vest, um, but but all the time. So like when I go to the grocery store, I have on weights. So basically every movement I'm doing is um, an, an automatic muscle bearing exercise. Um, yep. I, I do think, I think muscle support is so, so important. Like people for body composition and health, a lot of people focus on cardio and the studies are pretty consistent in that really intense cardio or like cardio for weight loss doesn't tend to have the effects that we would anticipate it having um, compared to something like muscle support, strength training that builds a foundational body that speaking of blood sugar control, I think is so, so huge. So it's actually theorized that insulin resistance there's theories about where does insulin resistance start? Like, does it start at the fat cell? Does it start in the liver? But I think a predominating theory is that it actually starts at the muscle. Um, and then muscle is, you know, a huge sink for, 
for the glucose, for blood sugar, for the carbs that we eat. So I think supporting muscle is actually really, really key for metabolic health. Um, but I don't actually, so I don't do like a strength training, um, routine or anything like that, but I try to, well, actually the new thing I'm doing right now is, um, I'm doing, um, the M sculpt is what it's called, but it's, have you heard of it? It's muscle stimulation. So it's like the equivalent of like, so you go in, um, you can do any part of your body, but I'm doing my arms right now and you lay there for an hour and it's the equivalent of 20 or 40,000 bicep and tricep curls. (laughs) It's crazy. I seem to sense this trend, Melanie, that you do things to extremes. <laughs> yeah, <temperature>. yeah, <laughs> 20,000 bicep curls. You just I, lay there. <laughs> I'm so. so glad that you mentioned movement because I think that is the next thing we're really going to hear a lot of discussion about is, and you mentioned this in your book, the whole um, area of um, non-exercise, um, ac- yes. n- non Exercise activity thermogenesis, right? Neat. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're right. We've become so sedentary. So many of us have desk jobs and we're on our computers all day. If we can just find ways to, to move, I think that's an excellent tip to, to just wear weights like ankle weights. And uh, I've heard, uh, I do this personally. I sometimes work at a standing desk and have a balance board at my standing desk, which causes some um, ab activation. But anything you can do to incorporate movement in your day is going to probably really help if you're looking for things like weight loss, burning more calories. Uh, There's, I can't remember the exact stat. You probably know if we look at all of your, your, your resting metabolism and how much you're, you're burning a fairly big portion of it is the neat portion compared to, um, your your basal metabolic rate and what you might get from exercise or the thermogenic effects of food, right? Yeah, I don't remember the exact percent, but even that, I mean, bringing everything full circle, people's individual neat responses also varies wildly. So I was reading one study and it was up to a thousand calories could be the difference. So basically, you know, one person might eat a lot um, let's say one person overconsumes their calories for the day. Let's say two pe- two people do. One person might literally just burn off those extra thousand calories, not without even realizing it, because it's their body upregulating that that need. And then the other person doesn't. So it can help explain in part while even with dieting, you know, um, why certain people might lose or gain more weight with a calorie surplus or a calorie um, deficit. So. Yeah. It, it's something you can't really consciously control, but it, it also equates to things that you can do just throughout the day with movement. So like fidgeting and dancing and walking with a pep in your step. And it's all the little the little movements that really add up. Yeah, it, it really is. I would love to switch the conversation now to one of my fa- favorite topics. I think yours as well, which is wine. Oh, yes. <laughs> I would love to. Let's start this with a lightning round. We've never done this before on the show, oh. but let's, let's do a little lightning round of questions. Oh, I'm so excited. Red or white? Red. New world or old world? Old world. Single origin or meritage? Oh, oh, both. Um, but I do like meritage. Uh, favorite varietal? That's hard. Probably Pinot Noir. 
Hmm. Pinot Noir, Old World or New World? Old World Pinot. Yes. Good also, answer. Also Tempranillo, which that's probably more New World, but yes. No, uh, Tempranillo from Spain, Riojas. Riojas are Tempranillo, right? Um, or the combination? I think, I'm not sure, actually. I should probably okay. know that. <laughs> All right. Since, since uh, Thanksgiving's coming up, last question in the lightning round, pairing with turkey. I, so I actually feel like people should just drink whatever they want to drink when pairing. <laughs> um, but probably like a, a cab or a Zinfandel. Interesting. A, li- so a I, light cab. I was going to say Pinot, actually, which is yeah. what I've been serving for the last few years. That uh, Everyone seems to balk when I, I open a bottle of red with turkey. And no, oh, really? no, no. You're supposed to have a Riesling, some kind of white. white. I know. No, no. Pinots are great. They're, the thing I love about both Old World and New World Pinots is they seem to pair with everything. That is true. They're, they're the most versatile of grapes. I guess that my cab response is more in response to I'm thinking Thanksgiving meal. <laughs> like, right, just like, the whole meal. So but going if it was the just end. turkey, what you said makes a lot more sense. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> well, thanks for indulging us in that lightning round. I, I'm curious how... In the world, did you think to uh, write a book about losing weight and incorporate wine into the the topic of the book? Because, um, so one of my crazy extreme dietary experiments um, was when I was researching. So this was after I went low carb and I started really getting obsessed on the science of diet and fat loss. And I realized out of the four macronutrients, carbs, fat, protein, and alcohol, that protein and alcohol are probably the least likely to become body fat. So I realized, oh, I could really just eat protein and drink as much wine as I want, and I'll probably lose weight. I I mean, at the very least, I probably won't gain weight. Um, So that worked (laughs) really well, and it really dismantled an idea that I think is out there that you that you can't drink and lose weight. Um, but alcohol itself, and I'm not saying to like go crazy to drink all the, drink all the alcohol, but I'm just saying like alcohol itself, I mean, it just doesn't become fat. So you're, you're not going to, from the actual alcohol, you're not going to gain weight. So I really wanted to, but go a step beyond that and, reframe it and look into it and see, you know, what is a healthy way to include alcohol, wine for me in your diet and, you know, maybe not even maintain weight, possibly even lose weight. Um, cause I'm a huge wine fan. So with wine, um, I, th- I think you go through this in the book. Um, it really is a matter of oxidative priority, right? And this is what you're referring to where, you say that alcohol doesn't get stored as fat. Your body actually has nowhere to store alcohol. It has to metabolize it and burn it, right? Exactly. So it's in the oxidative priority hierarchy. It's burned first because, well, because in part it's a toxin and also because it has um, yeah, nowhere to be stored. So when we're like the, the problem, um, the, the potential metabolic problem in our body is energy toxicity. So when we're taking in energy, it can't just all stay in the bloodstream because that would, I mean, basically just wreck our bodies. So, you know, this is, and this is a huge um, misconception out there. Fat, for example, people will say that fat doesn't really release insulin 
so that means we can have unlimited fat like on a low carb diet because it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't release much insulin so it must not be easily stored the the irony there is it doesn't release much insulin because it is so easily stored right. um so that is just such like a <laughs> it's just funny that like people took that and took it to the complete um opposite end but i say all that to say so fat is really easily stored so our body can easily store it. Um, carbs are, they can be put in glucose stores or they can be, well, tra- uh, turn into fat, which doesn't happen very likely, but alcohol has nowhere to be stored. So the body has to burn it right away because it's got, it's got nowhere to go. Um, so when you drink it, you're not going to store it, but whatever you're drinking with it will actually get stored. So there is that. <laughs> The context yeah, and, is key. And I think I've I've told the story before, but I'll tell it one more time. My my first experience with this is very early on in in measuring uh, glucose and, and watching my levels using Cygnus. But I um we had our niece over. She's nine, she's got a lot of energy. So usually uh, I'll have a couple of glasses of wine while I make pizza for her just because I need something to calm my nerves. My my wife remains sober to to make sure she I don't get into too much trouble with the oven nice. making that pizza. But the first time I did it, I noticed with like two glasses of red and eating half of a, a pizza, a homemade pizza, I wasn't spiking at all. And I thought I had discovered the the miracle cure <laughs> to to weight loss. What I didn't realize, though, is as I watched that CGM over the next couple of hours, as I spiked, but maybe two or three hours after that pizza. And it was almost like what you described might happen with uh, with almond butter. Is that, yeah, well, there's a, a difference in the shape of the curve. It was, wasn't as, as spiky, but it was this prolonged increase a couple of hours after versus like 20 or 30 minutes. Maybe that's just me. And, you know, back to our whole N equals one um, thoughts that some might um, have a different experience. It seems like you, you, did you do any of these experiments with drinking wine while you were looking at your glucose levels? Did you have a similar response? Yeah. So, um, well, actually that study we were talking about earlier, the, the one that looked at the, made the algorithm and looked at the personalized responses, they actually did find, again, it's individual, but they did find that alcohol in general tend to reduce postprandial glucose response, um, kind of similar to what you just said. But then it, it is interesting, like the longer, you know, if you look at the longer timeline of it, um, do you have a, a, an elevation later, maybe because the body's, you know, getting around to processing these other things. Um, for me, I, I, it shows like on my CGM, it tends to drop my, cause I, again, I wait, you know, I eat late. Um, so my blood, my blood sugar is usually pretty low by that point, but having the alcohol tends to drop it even a little bit more. Um, the, you know what? I, I always have a little bit of wine, so I don't, I haven't, I did go. So in 2019, I think, I don't think I drank at all that whole year. But I wasn't. I don't think I was wearing a CGM yet. I don't think I've done a CGM experiment um, without the wine. So that would be that would be a really good thing to check. Yeah, that'd be interesting to see the delta between the two. Now, with wines, uh, of course, every wine has got uh, different sugar levels. Have you noticed that there are particular wines that are better 
for your uh, glycemic response, or, or maybe because you're not seeing anything, it's hard to tell if you're drinking maybe a, um, I'm trying to think of a good dessert. I don't know if you drink port, like a fortified wine or. I, ima- just, yeah, I imagine a port would. <laughs> would probably spike you, right? Maybe yeah. not, not a port, something just a slightly sweeter wine. Let's say a Riesling. Um, one of the sweeter Rieslings. I don't know if you've dabbled with that to see if, if that might get you to, to have a, a slight spike versus another wine. Yeah, that would be a really good question. So all of the wines that I drink are all low sugar, even the whites. Mm, like okay. um, so I I would be I would be really curious. I would imagine though, at least for me, and just being quote intuitive, um I I would imagine if it was sweeter for me that I would probably see a spike. So I actually recently did a program that looked at my my blood sugar clearance response and my fat clearance response. And it, it's funny. It was, it, it was exactly what I thought it was going to be, which was apparently I process fat really well and blood and sugar carbs. Not so, not so much. Um, so I think intuitively for me, if it was a sweeter wine that it probably would spike and then, but somebody who has good blood sugar clearance, maybe it wouldn't be as much of a difference. Right. So going back to our theme, it really is probably individual, an individual response. Yes. Yes. How about, I, I think I know the answer to this uh, for you. I, when I have more than two glasses of wine at night, I have a big disruption in my sleep. And then as we've talked about, bad, bad sleep can lead to some issues with glycemic control the day after. Is that something that people should be concerned with? Should we become day drinkers? <laughs> with your program um so yeah that's a really good point and um so i wear different wearables to monitor my heart rate and my sleep and things like that and it, it knows like if i have too much wine um i definitely see an effect on my sleep quality and it it's almost shocking um but as far as like the, the timing of when to sleep so i i think there's the happy medium of, I mean, at least for me, and again, it would all be individual, um, having it in the evening when you're winding down, but allowing enough time for it to clear before actually going to bed. So I, I've probably finished my wine about three or four hours before actually going to bed. Um, if I drink up until bed, that's when I definitely will see an effect on my sleep. As far as day drinking, I, 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 it's so funny. Wine is like one of my favorite things in the world. And one of my least favorite things in the world is day drinking. I just, <laughs> like, <laughs> don't, it just messes me up. Um, like as far as like it with my fasting and then I get ravenous and it, it just, it doesn't work for me. Um, but then, right. So, so you're OMAD, you're doing evening meal, right? For your mm-hmm. one meal a day. So if yeah. someone was doing maybe lunch as their one meal a day, that might, that might, be more conducive to have that glass of wine, but yeah, having the alcohol alone on an empty stomach, other yeah. issues. Um, yeah. So it's, it's interesting about the, you know, on the empty stomach and it kind of goes back to what you're we talking about with like area under the curve and, and processing. And I, so I find what works for me. And again, this is very individual, but in a way I do well on an empty stomach. I feel like I get, 
I, I, I taste it more. I appreciate it more. And then I feel like I clear it faster because it's hmm. the only thing being processed. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I think about that a lot, but you know, a person with like a lunch fasting window, um, or eating window. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if they want to drink with their lunch or they, it might work better for them to have a drink in the evening afterwards, but yeah, it's definitely, definitely individual. Yeah. I think the thing to take away from this is first of all, having something like wine in moderation, not necessarily bad for weight loss and maybe even good for weight loss. Yeah. And actually in women, um, wine specifically, correlates to lower weights. Um, but that could be a lot of factors that could be, um, yeah, it could be that just women who, um, drink wine tend to compensate with their dietary habits for it. But, um, yeah, the, the, I did for the book, I like went and read all of the studies I could find on wine and my takeaway and alcohol as well. And, but my takeaway was that, because there's some people will say, you know, it's a poison and there's no, there's no good dose of it, but, it seems to me that the longest lived populations all drink wine. They all have, or drink some sort of alcohol. Um, and then the health effects, it, there seem to be a lot of beneficial effects. There are obviously certain risk factors or certain things that should be considered, but in a healthy diet, I think it definitely can have a, a place. Yes, absolutely. Well, Melanie, we're running out of time. Where can people find you and your book? Sure. So, I am basically Melanie Avalon everywhere. So MelanieAvalon.com, Melanie Avalon on Instagram, um, the shows that you mentioned, the Intermittent Fasting Podcast and the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Those are on all, all podcast platforms. So wherever you listen to your podcasts. And then the book is in stores, it's in Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Um, yeah, that's all. that's all the things. Excellent. Well, you've been such a fascinating guest, and I think we're going to have to have you on again because there's so many questions I didn't get to you. Uh, so thank you so much, Melanie. It was a fascinating episode, and we can't wait to speak to you again. No, thank you so much. This was so fun. I feel like we're kindred spirits and <laughs> the way we <laughs> the way we like interpret the world and everything. And I'm so excited you're coming on my show. So that's going to be so fun. I'm so yes. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much. I This was just absolutely wonderful. Thanks, Melanie. Thank you for joining us today on Body Signals. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, review, and subscribe to this podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Cygnos Health. And if you're interested in becoming a Cygnos member, go to Cygnos.com on the web to request early access. Until next time.